Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate, personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. Today's guest is Reeve Carney, continuing our Town takeover as, you know, he's Orpheus on Town on Broadway. And he's actually kind of this perfect example of how saying yes to opportunities led him down a career path he never thought he'd have. Because uh, like going through TV and film and trying to just pick up a guitar at age 12, which I'm going to get to in a second led him to start working in L.A. and Julie Taymor and Spider-Man and et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, here he is. And of course, I'm glazing over a lot and paraphrasing. He picked up the guitar for the first time at age 12, was jamming with people three times at his age at age 14, and then started to become professional, getting paid to perform at age 15. So he won't say it. He is incredibly humble, but he is probably a bit of a guitar prodigy and just sort of a prodigy in general. He reverse-engineered effects pedals, guitar effects pedals, to try to figure out what makes two seemingly identical pedals sound slightly different, and now he just started making his own. So QuarantineEffectsUSA.com is his company. He's making his own effects pedals. Incredible. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Twitter. Let me know you're listening. Share this podcast with a friend. Spread the word, and everybody... If you haven't already, go back in your feed, check out the other amazing episodes, all from the cast of Hades Town for this Hades Town takeover. And everybody, please enjoy this episode now with Reeve Carney. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest may be best known for his portrayal of Dorian Gray in Showtime's Penny Dreadful, one of my favorite shows, by the way. Riff Raff in Fox's Rocky Horror Picture Show, reimagining as well as originating the role of Peter Parker in Julie Taymor and U2 Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. He can now be seen in his Green Room 42 residency, performing his original music or swooning the crowd eight times a week as Orpheus in Town on Broadway. Reeve Carney, welcome to the theater podcast. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, I I love. Um, I actually didn't know this about you. I've known. I've we've met a couple times, um, and I just know you as this wonderful, wonderful artist, and with this voice that transcends all normal senses of human decency. And oh, we'll, wow, get in, <laughs> we'll get into that. But uh, I know I want to start at the beginning because 
it's very rare, I think, to have somebody who grew up in New York. You grew up in the West, or you're born in the West Village. Did you grow up there in Manhattan? You've been in Manhattan your whole life? Yeah, uh, technically, yeah, I guess technically I was born in the Upper East Side only because I was born at Mount Sinai, Hosp- Mount Sinai Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, the first place I ever lived was, uh, uh, you know, 10th Street in the West Village, just off of 7th Avenue South, and then uh, moved to 17th Street when I was two years old. So yeah, I, I grew up, yeah, in the, in the village. So more, yeah, most people that I know that that are, I that are I guess born in and sort of have their young life in Manhattan when they get older, they're like, I need space. I want to grow up and and be uh, out of here. But it seems like with your family's history of performing and you, it's in the family, man. Like you've got to either you were here or L.A. were seemingly your only two places where feasibly you could go. Yeah, oh, yeah, because you're saying people who are not born in the city wanting to get. Yeah, you can't really. Yeah, where else are you gonna go? You, I, you're already. And people always ask me whether I prefer New York or LA because I, I did move to Los Angeles uh, for high school, and a little bit before then we were bi coastal. My whole family, because my brother was on a TV show called Dave's World in the '90s, and so it, people ask me which I prefer, but it's kind of like I don't know. I mean, both are such great cities. It's it's uh, it's one of those things where I feel very grateful to have have those options i guess and i so i don't really choose because it's you know i've I spent a lot of time in a lot of parts of america and actually i love so much of the country but there's certainly places that are not quite as exciting in so many uh different ways as new york and los angeles well growing up again you let's see you're you're family has this legacy of performing. So your father was a songwriter for commercials and your mother is a singer and great uncle of course, is Academy Award winner Art Carney, yeah, right? Like it's, it's yeah. in it's in the family. And <laughs> as a child, I guess I was reading that you you started playing guitar when you were twelve, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, but before that, though, did you see uh, performing all around you? I mean, being in New York, you're you could either, I guess, gosh, you could be immersed in just about anything. But what was your childhood like up until that point when you decided to start? performing and taking up guitar. Yeah, I mean, I definitely look at it. I mean, you see uh, in the theater, uh, a lot of uh, the IATSE union is, a, it's in some ways, there's a big family connection in terms of uh, the history of uh, theater workers. And I, I find that it was kind of a similar thing for me growing up. Like, I, it's sort of the way that electricians or carpenters will be like, hey, this is like the family business. We're going to do this. I I just always kind of assumed that's what I was going to do because I, I was just drawn <laughs> to art at a young age. I mean, I, I wanted to be a graphic or like a, a painter is what I wanted and a sculptor is what I wanted to do first at the age of like five, which sounds, I mean, I guess all kids love doing that, but I was pretty obsessive about it. So I would spend a lot of time, um, you know, free time doing that sort of thing. And that's what I actually thought I was going to do first. But then by the time I was eight, I sort of got the performing bug, I guess, and I wanted to be a performer. Was that from yeah. watching watching your family or watching your great uncle or your uncle? Or like where you know, did where did you see that modeled? I I think it's an interesting question because I think uh I think this is where the term uh representation comes into play and is and and is as important as it is. And I, I hadn't really thought of that until you just asked me that question actually, but um, 
I, I when, as a kid, people used to think that I was Macaulay Culkin on the street, <laughs> and I, and I wonder if that has something to do with it because I kind of did resemble him, and so I, I never really thought of it, but it is so important to have people that you're like, oh, I can do that. You know, maybe I can. And I think, who knows, that might have had something to do with it. I don't really know if the Macaulay Culkin thing did, but um, I, people used to stop me in the street, especially uh, foreign tourists, and they, they wouldn't use their words. They would just like go out like, ah, like, and they'd hit the, their cheeks and like, yeah, yeah, the and they'd, make, they'd make me do it. And so I would do that. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that's the reason, but it just brought in a bigger conversation. You asked me that because it made me think of that. Um, but, uh, aside from that, I, I think it was just that I really loved doing it. And I, I, and, uh, yeah, my family was in that business already. Uh, so they were very encouraging of it, um, as much as you can be, because also they were afraid of it because they, they really kind of on, on one hand, I think secretly wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, which I would have actually loved to do. But, um, just because it's a difficult business, the performing arts, but yeah, I guess that was it. It is just just the family business thing. Just thinking about how uh, you see something, and yeah, it just seems like it's something that our family does. So I and I was interested in it. So yeah, that's really interesting to me. That I guess you grow up in whatever is is normal for you, right? So every kid has its own their own version of normal depending on what they're around and what their what their parents do or or what their guardians and um i guess yeah what their environment says to them so there's the nature versus nurture part of it and you you can't in i mean i was going to say you can't teach the kind of voice that you've got because people people That's go nice there Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I thank you for complimenting yeah, uh, your compliments. Yeah. Um the voice that you've got, though, you, you start performing at, or you start picking up the guitar, start playing at 12, and 12 is a year, is is one of those years when the voice, for especially for, for boys, is like, <laughs> it's, yeah. pre, it's pretty bad at this point in time, at least for me it was. Yeah. And so are you, are you starting to take voice lessons? Are you picking it up because you just want to play, or do you want to sing, or is it like a, a forward-looking movement of saying, like, I want to be on the Broadway stage? No, yeah, I was always uh, I was always a huge fan of theater, especially if it involved music, because I, I and and just live performance in general. But I really did not envision myself being a musical theater performer um, at that age, and I think a lot of that had to do with the material being produced at that time, because this that would have been even pre. Uh, uh, the debut of Rent on Broadway. Mm -hmm. So I think it was probably written or at least partially written at that point, but I but it wasn't out there yet. And so yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of, well, also I, at that age, you don't really know what type of voice you're going to have. Although at that age, I was very much a Steven Tyler fan. The, the, the people I was into at that age were like Freddie Mercury, Steven Tyler and Aerosmith, obviously and Queen um, and uh, Edgar Winter. I was really into those sort of singers, although my voice hadn't changed at all yet. So I, I wasn't, I have a recording of me singing actually, uh, basically trying to emulate Steven Tyler on an Aerosmith song when I was 14. My voice was kind of, my voice changed a little later than most though. So I, I don't, and it, and it was kind of gradual. I didn't have a whole lot of the squeaky thing. It was kind of like a four year process of voice changing from like probably, <laughs> uh, who knows, it might still be changing. I, I, mean, <laughs> I think it's basically what it is, but. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, 
I think, uh, but it certainly helped that my mom, she has a degree in musical theater from Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. And so uh, she knew to not have me in voice lessons during that time, because it's not generally a great thing for someone to train their voice prior to uh, it changing. Because you're you're not, I'm not exactly sure why it is, but I've always known like you're not supposed to do that. And uh, maybe because you can develop the, the musculature changes, I guess. So right. if you're if you're training it for something that is temporary, it's almost like putting braces on baby teeth. I don't know. Maybe that's kind of a thing. I, but um, so yeah, I did not train vocally. Actually, I had. I was in choirs, but I didn't take an official voice lesson until I was around 22. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, you took a while. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it. That's the thing. So I was, I really just wanted to be a guitar player. At that point, singing wasn't really on my radar. I only started singing publicly because I was playing these blues clubs when I was um, starting at the age of 14. And I was fortunate enough to be able to play with guys that were at that time, three times my age, which is crazy to think, but I mean, they were in their like late forties and early fifties. And, um, I, uh, they, they wisely told me if you want to lead a band, you have to start singing. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I better start trying to do that. So that's what that I started seriously singing at around the age of 16. And then that led me to writing songs. By the time I was 18, I started kind of seriously writing songs. I'd written a few songs before then, but, um, so yeah, that was, that was the process for me was guitar to singing to songwriting, I guess. Wait, so you picked up the guitar at 12 and were playing with guys three times your age two years later in bands in the city? That's that's unheard of. Well, in LA, but also uh, it was probably about three years by the time I actually got paid for a gig. So <laughs> before, before then I was going to like jam nights playing with these guys. But then by the time I was 15, I was technically a professional guitar player because I was being paid for it. But um, but I guess you learn, I think you can really learn a lot in three years on that instrument, especially if you start young. And I had a great model for that as well. One of my best friends in the world is a guy named Johnny Lang, who you hopefully know, but mm -hmm. not enough people know about him. But um, he's a an amazing blues guitar player, soul guitar singing, a soul singer, you know, so, so many things he does. But um, I, he, had a similar trajectory he picked up a guitar when he was i think 13 and was or maybe was it maybe he was about 12 13 but within like a year or two he was leading a professional band in minneapolis it's so crazy so he really had a fast track i don't know yeah i mean i felt that's nice to th yeah i mean it, i guess it is a little bit fast but I, I think a lot of people i think people can do that and i don't know if it was particularly unusual but I, maybe I, that was nice it's nice for you to say that i don't know I think it's pretty incredible. I, you know, speaking as somebody who's been around a lot of musicians that have taken years and years or, you know, a decade and still are not playing. And maybe it's one of those things, I was going to say playing professionally, but maybe it's one of those things where at such a young age that you didn't realize how difficult it would be. And so you just went and did it. Because I've heard before from people that if they knew how hard things were going to be, they wouldn't have ever started. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that maybe is part of it. And also just having the passion. I do have, I mean, I, I spent, in fairness, I, when I had time to, um, during those years, I was playing for like eight hours a day, literally. Like I was yeah. in my room just like literally playing eight hours a day. And that, that, that helps. I mean, because you can get 
a portion of your quote 10,000 hours in, you know, a lot quicker if you're playing eight hours a day. So but, at, at that point, is school not even like academic science and biology and the math and that stuff? Like, is your brain is your brain is music? Your brain is performing no, I and mean, singing. I right? was I'm I'm very uh, what's the word for it? I I, I I I definitely was a very diligent student. So I, I think I graduated with like a, over a four GPA because I took so many like extra AP classes or whatever the heck. Wow. So I was very academically oriented as well. But I went to a musical performing arts school where, um, uh, but mainly because my parents were like, you can't do this other stuff unless you get good grades. So it was, it was kind of like growing up that way. Like you can do, you can play at nightclubs if you maintain like a straight A average. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Wow. But I also wanted to do that because I didn't, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I always want to try to do the best I can do. And so and I, and I saw the value in it because I also, at that age, I wanted to go to Yale. I didn't end up ever applying to Yale, but my dad went to Yale. So I think that's why I wanted to do it. But um, I, so I knew in order to get into Yale, you got really good grades. So <laughs> I, I was like, I better, I better keep trying, you know. But, but I think um, I was more referring to the summers because during the school year, I did not have time to play eight hours a day. But I still played a few hours a day. Um, and I, I uh, also went to a music, uh, a performing arts academy. So I had at least two hours of music in school a day. Right. Well, you, so, so you went another. to Academy of Music at Alexander Hamilton High School in LA. Yeah. Where, yeah. With, what is it? I'm reading, pulling out for the internet here with your brother Zane and future yeah. bandmates, Aiden Moore and John Epcot. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you and Aiden and John have been playing together for years, which I think actually uh, leads into, well, I guess in Spider-Man, right? They played in the pit. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, like, you you brought did would I guess how did that come about? Because a go uh, working with Bono and the Edge is just incredible in and of itself. Which, when you were talking yeah. about the people who you were idolizing as a younger kid, I feel like you too is right up there with them. So, getting yeah. to work with these people and then, oh uh, yeah. So, I'll stop and let you answer. But did your band bring you to the audition, or did you bring the band to the pit? Well, so I had just. I had just gotten signed to Interscope Records. I was 22, and uh, a manager named David Sonnenberg had come to... There was a lot going on at that time, and a lot of different label people that were coming to the show, so it's a little bit of a confusing story, so I probably it'll take too long to go into all the details, but I ended up meeting a manager named David Sonnenberg who used to uh, manage a huge titan of the record industry named Jimmy Iovine, who I'm sure you've heard of. Mm-hmm. And so he brought Jimmy Iovine to uh, one of our Molly Malone's residency shows um, in like February of 2006. And uh, at that point, um, Jimmy, I guess, basically like on the spot said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And the next day I was in his office having a meeting saying, hey, so we're going we're gonna to do this deal. And so I had just been signed there. Uh, the reason I mentioned that is that at the same time, Julie Taymor was making a film called Across the Universe, and uh, Bono obviously has a cameo, cameo in uh, a cameo. No, he has a, he has a cameo. In, <laughs> he's camouflaged in, in the movie. Yeah, he's camouflaged. He's like, 
but he um he has a cameo in that film. I, I think I, I almost didn't use the word because that that app cameo, and I got a little bit confused for a second. Like, <laughs> it, no, I, not, I mean I knew it was the right word, but, it, but who knows? But um yeah, he uh, so he has a cameo in that film, and uh, one of my other best friends, TV Carpio, um, she uh, I met her around that time, uh, and she had met my manager and Jimmy Iovine. Um, in that same year. So they brought her to uh, our my concert at Molly Malone's and uh, we struck up a friendship quickly. She brought Evan Rachel Wood, who we also became close friends uh, at that during that time. And uh, they had a c- connection to Bono and obviously Julie Taymor. So they told Julie about me. And like a couple years later, Julie ended up, they ended up bringing, or TV ended up bringing Julie Taymor to a concert of our band Carney's at the the Mercury Lounge. And so that's how I got my audition for her film, The Tempest, which I ended up getting. And after working with her on The Tempest in 2008, nine, I guess it was, um, that's when she said, hey, I have this musical. Well, I already knew about it, but at the time she didn't think I'd be right for it because my hair was really long and I just didn't look like a Peter Parker type in her mind. But ultimately she changed her mind, Julie Taymor did, and had me audition. And that's, yeah, that's how I got involved. I, I, and at first it wasn't really an audition. It was just, she kind of dangled the carrot in front of me saying, well, first of all, I wanted to help her. She said the person who was originally going to play the part had backed out last minute. And, um, I think this is out there. So I, Oh yeah. I remember the story now that, now that you're saying it, I remember reading about it. Well, I mean, the original cast of Spider-Man turn off the dark was going to be Jim Sturgis as Peter Parker uh, Evan Rachel Wood as Mary Jane and Alan Cumming as the Green Goblin. That was like yeah. the original thing. And then Jim backed out. I he was having other things he was working on, obviously. And then Julie called me just to basically fill in for him at this event where they were going to be presenting the musical portion of the show to a bunch of investors. And she said, if you, she just asked if I could help, and I was like, no problem. And she's like, and, and you get to meet Bono on the Edge if you come. I was like done i'm in so that's that's how i got involved i flew to new york just to sing that thing didn't think i was auditioning for a musical i thought i was literally just there to kind of help and to have a fun week meeting these people and then they had me audition and it was about three months of auditions but i ended up ultimately getting the part and that that really changed things for me getting that part and so then i that's you the question is about the band um yeah, sorry. This is so confusing, but it makes sense in my head, and hopefully this will make sense on the podcast. But um, the reason I brought all that up is that, and the connection with Interscope and everything, was that Jimmy Iovine also at the time thought, wow, this is going to be a really helpful thing for us launching your music. So there was this whole thing. I, I ended up asking Julie if there was any cons- thought, maybe if they hadn't had a band yet, if maybe they would consider having our band. Cause obviously we went to music school, everyone reads music. They played in orchestra pits their whole lives. So I, I brought the band in. Um, and it's been really amazing because a lot of us are still doing that work. Um, like our bass players in the Hamilton tour, our drummer played for mean girls. He's doing another show that's coming to Broadway soon. Wow. Um, but so that now it's kind of changed the trajectory of our careers in a, in a way we didn't expect this. But I guess the point is there was a weird connection between Interscope, Julie Taymor and myself and Bono and the Edge. And it all kind of uh, collided into this thing and helped really, yeah, 
So the most important question I'm going to ask this entire interview is, yeah. what do you call the Edge in person? Do you call him Mr. Edge or do you call him uh, the? I don't think, I've never heard anyone call him Mr. Edge, but I think the Edge or Edge is like, I, I think I've always called him Edge. Yeah, I think like, like hey, the hey, edge. hey, the Edge. Hey, the Edge. Yeah, I just, I just say, hey, Edge. But the I think edge. you could do that, but it might be a little weird. Yeah, I just call him <laughs> hey, edge. hey, Edge. Edge and Bono. So working, yeah. working with the two of them though. When you first, uh, when you first walk in, you meet them, and are do you get stage fright? Do you get starstruck anymore at that point in your and in that point in life too? When you're going and meeting these major, major pop star moguls. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think I the first audition that I didn't really know was an audition. Um, it. I think I approached it in a way that I probably should approach every audition. And it's easy. This is the thing. Like, it's not always easy to do because the fact of the matter is, this is why I'm such a huge fan of writers, like including songwriters like Bono and Edge. Um, but, but in terms of auditions, like where there's no music involved, it can be frustrating because, you know, it's, it's not every day that you have a, an incredible piece of work to work with. And uh, that was certainly the case when you're auditioning for Bono and the Edge. I mean, so... For me, to get to the chance to sing their song in front of them, uh, I approached it the way I probably should approach every audition in the sense that I was just excited to show them what I could do with something that I was very excited about. Like, I, I really loved their material, and I was just like, wow, I'm getting to sing this for them. This is cool. So that I wasn't really approaching it from a nerve standpoint in that way, whereas like a lot of times I think as actors we approach it as like, oh, I want to get this right and do this, you know, especially on a self-tape. All of our stuff these days is self-tapes. Mm -hmm. And it's like almost impossible to get really excited about. <laughs> because <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm doing this thing at my house where I'm the cameraman, the casting director, and the, you know, it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes. But in, in that sense, uh, it was really exciting. I, I, I felt that it was like a great opportunity, obviously, to be able to sing for these legends. And I, I will say, I did say to... Bono, uh, a few years later, after watching Rattle and Hum, I said to him, I'm really glad I didn't see this before meeting you guys because I think I would have been all, even more nervous had I watched this film. <laughs> I could imagine, yeah. But now, I guess through Spider-Man, I mean, celebrities love to come and have their picture taken with the cast of, with Broadway cast. They'll come and see the show and then you go up on stage and... Um, you know, looking through your Instagram earlier, there was like a picture like, hey, it's it's me and John Hamm. We're hanging out. John Hamm came backstage. Oh, yeah, right? that's right. So obviously that's a little bit different now in COVID times, but it is, I guess, the trajectory you're on now and um, I guess, well, my, my question through all of my random thinking here is you've got this great family legacy of being talented performers and actors and artists in one form or another. And so you're, I suspect as a child, you were probably around quite a number of, of pretty well-known people, right? And so now you're in that position to give somebody else the butterflies and give somebody else uh, the, star, <laughs> the starstruck ability. Um, but when, when you're on stage now, I guess there's two questions here. One, when you're on stage now and you're on Broadway, did you imagine that Broadway would be where you were headed because you originally wanted to just play guitar, but then also yeah. the star power that you now, this ecosystem that you encompass, is this part of, of something that 
that you were always part of, or is this brand new? You know, since since the Spider Man days and onward. I, I, yeah, I mean, I wasn't anticipating having my career be what it is in musical theater, which I think is incredible. It's really mind blowing and crazy, and um, and I, I absolutely love it because it's like I I think I. There's a part of me that really loves the routine, especially the type of routine that Broadway, this Broadway schedule brings. It's quite a grind, but it's it's amazing. I mean, you you can live in one city in like arguably the greatest city in the world. Certainly, it's it's. I mean, I grew up here. I'm from, and I love, I absolutely love New York. And you get to go to work eight times a week, and then enjoy the city. You you know, you don't have a lot of. You have to be. Everything has to be based around that those eight performances per week at least that's the way i look at it because i don't like missing shows but like um and i don't know if anyone does you know but it's uh but it but then you in your downtime you have all of this beautiful city to enjoy so it's it's an amazing thing i mean because on tour you know i love that world as well and i love playing music and playing guitar but uh with that lifestyle you're in a different city every day which is also exciting but you don't get to sleep in your own bed. You know, there, there are trade-offs. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. You've got the residency at Green Room 42 as well. And, you know, you're doing Hades Town eight times a week. Um, so are you, are you still actively... Uh, like looking forward in your career, right? Are you actively auditioning and you mentioned self-tapes a second ago. Are you trying to continue down the hardcore musical theater path or are you trying to go independent music uh, or even, you know, signed label music artist? So are you trying to be the the rock artist, the pop artist or the or jazz artist? I mean, are you, or the Broadway scene? Because it seems like it's two sort of orthogonal paths that don't quite intertwine, although you're, you've got really fortunate to be able to showcase the guitar skills in Hadestown. So you can, pl- you can have a little bit of that. I mean, I don't show it. much of what I do in that show, but th- <laughs> that's nice. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple part in that show, thankfully, because actually it would be quite hard to, to really act and, and play and walk around the stage. I mean, it's like Garth Brooks style stuff. We got to do that. I mean, I'm just kidding, but (laughs) he's the first person I would thought of who would like walk around a huge stage with a guitar back in the day. But, um, but I, yeah, I don't, I I mean, I, I feel very fortunate to be living in a time where it's not only acceptable, but it seems to be celebrated and almost encouraged or actually, yes, encouraged to pursue, uh, career paths sort of what's the word i guess they use the word multi-hyphenate yeah or you know sort of some integration of skills i it's it because part of the reason i i avoided acting for so long because i i did tell my parents when i was eight years old that i wanted to be an actor but once i picked up the, the guitar when i was 12 because this was 1995 um i at that time, it was not cool to be a musician and an actor. Like if you're, you got to pick one, or or you're, you're kind of lame at, at one or the other. It, it, that's how it always felt to me. Like you're going to not be taken seriously as a as a musician if you are also an actor, or vice versa. And and now it doesn't seem like that anymore. So I'm really grateful for that. And I I really enjoy different aspects of a lot of uh, of all of these things. So. I don't really have a desire to stay in one lane, 
And I also am very grateful for the work that I have. So it's because it's, you know, it's, it's a tough business. So w- when you have a great job, it's important to keep that in mind. I think, you know, for me, that's, I've always felt, uh, or uh, at least that's, you know, yeah, as long as, yeah, that's how I, that's how I feel about things. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, whatever opportunities arise, if I'm doing work that I like, then I'm grateful to be doing it. But I think it's, it's kind of important to d- diversify sort of like you would with like a, like a sort of financial portfolio or something. And um, like right now, uh, <laughs> musical theater might be like the gold and the bonds or something, but like <laughs> you might need to invest in some stocks or something to, you know, in, in the, I don't know, whatever that that's kind of, no, I get, I I get what you're saying. Cause literally yeah. uh, like, let's make it a real example. Broadway shut down. Right. So yeah, you've got yeah. a whole industry, your bonds crash, your gold market crashes yeah. <laughs> and it, that's gone. So you still have to survive on something. And yeah. for you, like you can, you can still play guitar and you can still compose music. And now with technology, like you're writing music and you don't even have to be in the same room or studio with your bandmates anymore because you can literally right. just, the internet is so readily available. You can just record your stuff and send it to your friends, say your bandmates and they add on and send it back or you, you're all doing yeah. multi-tracks online together. And there were yeah. so many people that I know from the Broadway space that have had whole albums written in quarantine because they had nothing else to do. It's finally their time to to explore that. Yeah, that I was, that's why I started, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I started an electronic effects pedal company called quarantine yes. effects USA, obviously because of the quarantines and everything. And, and that, that was great for me. Cause I, it was weird. I found it was so shocking to me as I'm sure it was to everyone in the world that, you know, obviously it was not by any means the most crucial uh, or important thing to focus on as a result of the pandemic, but, or, or stemming from the pandemic. But, um, you know, the fact that you could shut down s- entire industries for that length of time, I, I just couldn't believe it. And for that reason, I wasn't particularly inspired at that moment to really write music for some reason, because I felt like, oh man, like how easy is this for, for this to happen? Like, because I, I I have thought about writing something like whether it be a musical. I, I've thought about that a lot actually. Writing a musical just because I I'm so drawn to theater. Right, Home Alone the musical. Home Alone. I mean that would be that could be either great or really terrible. I His star is is yeah. adult Macaulay be, Culkin. Wow, that would be so weird. <laughs> Bring it all full circle. Anyway, go ahead. We should just get him. He maybe he'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um yeah uh, I. Uh, but that so that's I, I I and I think I found um, real comfort in focusing on because the thing with when you're designing circuits, you're so you're kind of like in control of everything in air quotes because, and I think I felt I think we all felt so out of control during that time that that was a really healthy thing for me and I and it's been amazing because it's it's created a new love for me that I didn't even know I had so I'm like I'm. That that's that's really been one of the biggest silver linings for me, I think, out of the pandemic. The fact that I started that company because it's been um, it's just really something I enjoy, and I, I can do it by myself. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this is this is fascinating to me. And I was going to ask if you're actually working with the hardware yourself, and it sounds like it sounds like you are. Yeah, I do everything: the drilling, the artwork, the 
Wow. Wow. So uh, effects pedals in general, I feel like maybe uh, sort of like um, sticky notes that were invented by mistake. They were looking for a glue that was really strong and they didn't get it right. So it kept coming off, but it remained sticky. So they're like, oh, we'll call it sticky notes. And now we have sticky notes, right? So there's many things that were invented out of a mistake. So my guess is that the very first effects pedal was like, oh, let's just, you know, make something that does this thing. And then it all, oh, oh shit, it all, it changes the way that sounds. Okay, let's make it an on-off switch. Okay, here we go. So when you're making effects pedals, what goes into this? Why, where are you like, well, I'm going to add this transistor and five more resistors over here. And that's going to make it go from, you know, like, what do you, where do you start with this? Yeah, I mean, I started actually because I bought. Uh, I was right before the pandemic, right before the Broadway shutdown in March of 2020. I, you know, we've been doing Hades Town for a, almost a year, and I thought it was a good time for me to uh, get because uh, I was doing a lot of Green Room 42 gigs as well, and I and I thought, you know, I should get a backup pedal board that's like a, a mirror of my main pedal board. So I decided I'm just going to buy everything I have on that board and get a duplicate set. And so uh, I got everything in the mail. One of these pedals, one of my favorites came from Germany. And um, I basically just, I started like, so I, I, without going into all the details, I guess, I, I, because this could become a very long story. (laughs) But I basically, I just started like, uh, I realized at that point that some of the pedals don't necessarily sound exactly like their uh, other, the ones that they're supposed that they're the same model, but they don't exact, they don't sound exactly the same. Interesting. So if you and buy so two I, identical pedals, like off the production line, they may sound slightly they different. Should. They, they should, but especially some of the vintage ones, it can, you know, that it can, the case can, it, it can sometimes happen where like they're, they're quite different Yeah. because of maybe the parts they were using, even with like early Fender amplifiers, they were using parts with such wide tolerances that, there, that's why it's like, oh man, I've got a really great 65 basement because it's like that one probably is a really great one. And like, they're not that they're not all great, but like there, there are, there are going to be a little different. And, um, so I've started, I just got really curious because we were locked in our houses and, you know, I had these things and, and I just bought this iPad, which has been an invaluable investment because it's, I, I use that thing more than any any device I think I've ever had, but um, I just got this app called Good Notes that my brother told me about, mm-hmm. and took photos of the insides of these pedals, and basically did I guess what do they call it? Like a, a I guess you call it reverse engineering the pedal. That so I started saying, okay, why could this possibly sound different? And just try to figure that out, and then I tried to build one of them. And in the process of building one, I realized, oh, wow, like if you change, it's kind of insane, like how different, like, you know, depending on where it is, if you change like a 10K resistor to a 3K resistor, it's going to sound like a completely different pedal. It, it, it's kind of crazy how that is, but it, it's that's just the way these things work. So like if different changing different capacitors and resistors and transistors and op amps or whatever you're working with, they, uh, it yeah it's like small changes make a huge difference and yeah i mean that so i just started exploring that and researching reading books on electronics and mainly reading things online 
And that's how it all started for me. That is fascinating. As someone who loves to take things apart and understand how everything's work, everything works, I just realized that everything you described is something, it's a whole world that I think myself, or myself and probably most people listening, have never even thought about, like the mechanics right. behind how a, an effects pedal works. And, it's, right. and it, it really is, it's all about, you know where the electrons go and where they're stored and for how long and how much resistance yeah. they get and what it sounds like on the other on the other end i i'm fascinated by this and you've taught yourself how to do this in in what a year yeah i mean i i guess like with i was it sounds totally insane but i guess within like 6 months i was selling them so i was like <laughs> because so I was probably like six months, but I'm, you know, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, and I'm designing new circuits that are more complicated now, now that I understand kind of how I'm, I'm understanding more of the basics. Uh, or, you know, you, you can always be learning. I mean, that's the goal, I guess, to keep going, Oh, what can I, how can I improve this? Or how can I come up with something that's a little bit more maybe crazy, but also I think it helps that I've spent, you know, it's crazy to say, but I mean, I've been playing guitar for, I guess like 27 years, which is nuts to think. But so I, I played these things for so many years and I've been obsessed with buying pedals and, and, you know, routing my pedal boards and all these things that that gave me definitely a head start. And also I'm a, you know, I mix my own music. Cause a lot of it's like signal routing. So it's like figuring out if you know that this needs to go here and this needs to go here. And then I kind of approach building pedals for me, at least this particular brand of pedals, it's, it's kind of approaching it from an, I guess like a pro audio standpoint in the sense that it, I, I use my senses as like uh, a mixing engineer. I mean, I, I don't, I've only mixed for myself and for my brother at this point, but, um, but yeah, that, you know, that I, I mixed my album and my brother's jazz record. And so the, uh, the stuff I learned from that and like the small changes that you want to make to sweeten things and that, that's kind of how it, I approached this with the pedals because there can be big changes in sound by making small adjustments. Uh, it just, it's interesting to me, uh, I guess, uh, how you just said, um, you know, when you're mixing and you're mastering and you can, y you have all your different instruments coming in your different channels on your mixer board and you're tweaking the different yeah. frequencies and even people's voices. You can bring out a yeah. low end and, and or a high end or whatever yeah. the case is because you want to sweeten and get some specific sound. So ha have you found that that you're building for um, for what you think other people are going to like or what you want to play with? Like, how? where do you start yeah, it's, looking it's for really your sound? Yeah, it's really just for me. It's really just for me. Like, it's... it's And it's funny, because I got the chance to play, not to be trying to bring all these other things in it, but it reminded me, I got the chance to play Tom Ford this year in the House of Gucci film, and he talks about designing clothes in the same way. And so I related to him in that, because, I, I, you know, you want to figure out ways to relate to, these, to the characters you're going to play. But I relate to that very much, because, like, I... I mean, you hope that there's an audience for it, but ultimately you kind of, you don't have to do it this way, but that's how I wanted to do this. I mean, I, I really just set out to make pedals for myself. And then I was like, you know what? I really love these. And I'm also very picky. So I'm like, if I love them, then I might as well see if other people like them too. That, that, that's kind of what it was. And, and maybe at one point I'll design based on what I think people want. Um, but it is more for me at this point, just because there's, I have a wide uh, range of tastes uh, musically and with pedals. So if I like it, then I think there's a good chance other people, you know, that's kind of how I look at it, I guess. There's a good chance there's some sort of audience for it. That's incredible. I love that. And 
I, I really uh, love the entrepreneurial side of things too, because like you said, diversification, um, yeah. getting, getting <laughs> yeah. yourself out of there. The, the next Broadway shutdown hopefully never happens, knock on wood. Right, exactly. Um, I hope, yeah. Yeah, right, right. So, but bringing this to Town now, so how did you get involved with the production? Because this, is, this has been around, like Aeneas, in some form or another, Aeneas has been writing and rewriting and performing and workshopping for like, like 10 years, I think, before it came to Broadway? Yeah. Yeah, I actually got the first email. It's crazy. I checked back my email a couple of years ago when we first started, or maybe during the pandemic, I can't remember, but um, I... Uh, First email I received from my agent about Haiti Sound was in 2012. Wow! And it was uh, I. They offered me the reading of. Um, I guess it was the first reading that they were, that they were doing that Aeneas was doing um, for a potential Broadway run. And I won't say stupidly because I think it was the right decision at the time. I actually said no to the reading mainly because they played me the music and I got confused. Uh, I just said I don't think I'm the right guy for this because they. Uh, they sent me the concept album and obviously Justin Vernon, the way I hear his uh, singing in general and, and particularly specifically on that soundtrack, you know, cause he has like a four part harmony mainly. He usually sings with like a, you know, at least three layers of vocals above his own fundamental tone. I always heard the fundamental frequency as like the, uh, it, on that particular recording, what key was it in then? I forget. Uh, I think it was like down here, but it was like, he, he was like, it's like this, like it was very low, but then they also, had, it was all that, the, and, and the, all these, there's all these harmonies in the middle. I, I, it was not clear to me that they wanted, that they imagined that Orpheus would be singing the top harmony to the, so I thought, oh, well, they need a bass or a baritone for this role. That, that, so honestly, that's why I didn't get involved. I, I thought that it was a bass baritone role. I, I was very confused as to why they wanted me to do it. So it, it wasn't until Patrick Page got involved in 2016. I was doing Rocky Horror Picture Show at the time, so I couldn't get involved right then. But I eventually was able to get involved, and I'm so happy I did. Um, yeah. So and I think it's better that way because who knows if I would still be in it if I if I had gotten involved earlier because maybe I, I wouldn't it wouldn't have been as fully formed and and they would have been like oh we tried you but see you later so who knows I so I'm really glad I got involved when I did but but I, I had a chance to get involved in 2012. I think it's funny that Aeneas said once that uh, when she was asked why did you write Orpheus's role part so high and she goes well I just wrote for me I didn't realize that guys had trouble right. singing that high. <laughs> yeah, that that might that's funny that I mean. I guess that's true. It's uh, it and I'm, I'm glad. I, 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 yeah. I just really didn't understand. It wasn't clear to me at that time what they were doing with the show or how I would possibly fit in. But eventually, it became clear, and I'm, I'm really glad. Well, looking, looking at the way that the story is retold, and especially um, the way that Orpheus as a character interacts with uh, Eurydice, because Eurydice, I was talking about this with Eva during our chat, is that Eurydice is portrayed as she's not a damsel in distress. She's she makes she's very deliberate, makes this decision, and she's like, I'm going to make this decision, and I'm going to support Orpheus, and here we go. And so Orpheus is kind of in in this production, in this way that the show uh, portrays Orpheus. Orpheus is a bit the damsel in distress. Right. Which I love. I mean, it, it wasn't that way. That's the, one of the biggest changes we had coming from the national theater to Broadway. Uh, 
and understandably because it's like such a it's such a classic um what's the word archetype might be the word but it might not be the a, best a trope? word like a male yeah trope maybe it could be true but yeah i have to look both of those words up to properly know if, what the <laughs> perfect but I, I guess like the um you know it's something you see often in film and television and theater and draw uh, you know um the idea of like this macho guy and like you said the damsel in distress or something like that. and i'm really glad they went against that and i've had people compliment the show tell me compliment not me but compliment the show by giving me the information by saying we're really glad that they address the issue of toxic masculinity in this show in the way that they have and i was like yeah that's interesting i never really yeah i do i like that too i mean i because i i don't i i grew up with a lot of people that are not that way are, that are not toxically masculine and so there are a lot of guys that are not that way um but i think um going um from in London, they kept driving more towards. So, so Orpheus, he used to be. I always described him since I've been involved since 2017. He was kind of like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse, mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, he was, you know, kind of sensitive a little bit. But when push comes to shove, he's going to really beat someone down, kind of. And he was kind of a tough, flirtatious guy in previous versions. And so, when we got to our very first rehearsal in February of 20. 19 on Broadway all of us including myself and Patrick Page because we we had you know the creative team obviously in well not obviously well once you open a show they usually go away for a while and so in London it had been probably we probably had a few months of our run without them there during which point we were driving more and more towards that tough guy Orpheus and it seemed to work, like with with the old version of the show, the way that was written, it seemed to help. And so when we got to Broadway, we were all shocked to find out that Aeneas and Rachel had decided to completely flip it on its head and make Orpheus into this other type of person. And but it made it so much richer for me. It was like, oh wow, I can really work with this now. Like that. And so I'm really glad they did it because it, it changed every dynamic in the show changing that one character and that's mainly what changed from london to broadway in terms of the writing that was the biggest change i think and it, but it affected everything else and everyone right. else had to adjust to that right i don't i don't feel like the show would have the heart it has if orpheus was i i agree i don't think it did yep. yeah yeah, it like because you you're rooting for Orpheus because you empathize with him and you you know how much he cares and you know how much like he's literally yeah. going to the ends of the earth to to get Eurydice back, who has made a very conscious choice to 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 do something to support uh, Orpheus. And the fact that yeah, if if Orpheus was kind of a douche, then right. you'd be like, eh, all right, fine, yeah. let's go get somebody else. But he wants he needs her. That's why. Yeah. Oh man, that gas! It's so smart they figured it out because I none of us had thought of that. But thank goodness they thought of that right before we literally. It was like two weeks before tech they thought of that, and and we did it. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but I'm really glad that that we did it. So was the, was the vocal part changed too, or was it just like all right, all right, Reeve, we're gonna bring it, you into our room. All right, we gotta we gotta talk. Assume I'm fired. Well, it's it's great because Aeneas said to me, she said, and you know what, this is gonna solve a lot of the questions you've had about the vocal part. And I was like, yeah, you're right, that does make sense. Because I've always had a thing where, to me, the character, there, there's sort of like a, 
I think actually one of our cast members said this to me once, like, oh, I, I hear you look at things like it's almost like the dramaturgy of the voice. And I guess I do think of things like that a bit. Like, you know, there's so much there's so much information communicated through a voice that if if it sounds a certain way, I don't know. Like it, it to me there was a disconnect in the prior versions between the way Orpheus is singing and his persona. It was like, why is he singing like that? Why is he singing so high? It doesn't, it's not really tough. Like I, cause I, what I always try to lean towards in the prior versions was more of like a, um, a Jesus Christ superstar sort of approach to Orpheus. It, it made more sense uh, with the, with that character, that sort of, uh, sort of, I guess, edge to the voice, but um it, it no longer made sense. When Orpheus's character changed, I was like, oh, now all of these epics actually make sense to me. Because whenever I would do that before, they'd say, you know, maybe pull some of the edge off, a little bit less edgy, let's make it... I was like, I don't understand why, though, because he's this tough guy. Like, And then he comes out singing in this pure voice. It didn't really make any sense to me. So, yeah, so that... that There was some... And I, I that, that really... It, it all connected to me at that point when it was like, oh, okay, yeah, he, his purity of voice is represented in his his acting as well, you know, or his character. Yeah, that, that makes total sense because he, he's, if he's a tough guy, he's, he needs to sing with the edge and with, you know, tough. Yeah, it's like pure voice and putting the edge on that makes, that makes total sense. It's a great way to describe it because no, it's not, if he's singing without the edge, if he's singing, well, and Bono, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dad jokes. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> if he's singing without the edge, if he's singing like not as a tough guy, but acting like a tough guy, yeah, it's, you're not going to fully feel the character. So, yeah, props to the whole team for recognizing yeah. that. I think it's incredible. Because you want it to come out of nowhere. You don't want it to be like, whoa, I, I don't like being distracted when I'm watching shows where it's like, oh, where did that voice come from? Like, if you're going from singing to speaking, I, I like it to be kind of, especially in a in a sung-through show, there are moments where we're kind of speaking, but we're mainly singing. And you, I don't know. You, I just don't want it to like come out of nowhere. Yeah. Unless, except for the la-las in our show, that makes sense. And we, we always talk about that. And AS always, and Rachel always said, yeah, those are kind of their own thing, like because they're kind of magical. So you can, and that that always made sense to me. Right, right. Well, we're coming up on time. I appreciate everything you've been you've shared, and I want to wrap up with three closing questions that I ask everybody to uh, yeah. finish out the podcast. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? Motive, learning. Yeah, and actually, back to the diversification. I think Warren Buffett said the same thing. <laughs> I think I, I see, I've heard some interview with him saying that I really learning something new every day. is like really important, I think. Um, and my grandma, unfortunately passed away uh, this past year at the age of almost 94. But I think one reason she lived such a long, happy life, she was always learning, mm. always learning something. And we would always, you know, ask her questions like, uh, if you ask her a question, she said, I don't know. I don't know. Look it up. But it's a, it's a good advice. I, it's, it's really helpful to, have some thing on your list of your to-do list, I guess, every day. Like, oh, yeah, it, keep, it keeps you motivated. Yeah, having something to be motiv motivated by keeps you motivated, I guess. <laughs> yep, yep, I get that. I understand what you're saying. Okay, so now, yeah. what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Yeah, that, that's tough because it, it's interesting. You want to trust the, uh, the – you have to find a balance, I think, between – trusting your instincts and uh, using the wisdom of others to guide you. Because there are times when I think you might, 
uh, you might be tempted to listen to the advice of someone who has experienced something similar to you, but might not have, they're not you. So there's a chance that their advice won't necessarily be valuable and might actually lead you down the wrong path. So I don't really know. It's hard to give advice, I think, sometimes because um, it, it, I do think it's a balance between trusting your instincts and trusting those who have walked the path before. Hmm. It's a balance. All right, so final question, last one, hardest hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? This is a musical? Anything, any show. Oh, man, because I was going to say, currently I might say MJ. I'm, like, obsessed with that show. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's hard to pick just one thing. I don't know. Windy City Heat is also a great film. <laughs> All right, well, we can go with that. Where can we find you on social yeah. media? Uh, I'm on, I'm definitely on Instagram. I'm on, I have a Twitter page that I don't use as much as I maybe should, but got I've got all those things, but Instagram is probably where I, what I use the most. And I've been debating TikTok, but someone took my name. So I'm like, what? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Before, before I, I wasn't aware of what TikTok was by the time this happened. Can't you just go in and, and file like someone is impersonating me and then get... I, maybe I could. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I hate... Well, I shouldn't say I hate, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's always a little bit funny to me when people are like, the real blah, blah, blah. Because it's like, especially if their name is something like John Smith, it's like, the real John Smith. It's like, all right, so what about the other John yeah, what Smith? Are, <laughs> aren't they not real too? <laughs> yeah. Like Reeve, Reeve Carney official. You just add the yeah, official yeah, that's true. on the end. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Where can we get your effects pedals? Oh, you can get those at quarantineffectsusa.com. I, I also, I've got a, an Instagram page for that too, and it's on my my Reef Carney Instagram page, the link. But yeah, Quarant thank you. That's nice. Quarantineffects.com. Uh, yeah. QuarantineFXUSA.com Alright, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter I'm not on TikTok um, Leave a rating and review wherever you're listening This has been edited by Well-Read and Hoodlum Productions Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music Reeve, thank you so much for this chat It's been such a pleasure Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.